1: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher and I'm one of the hosts on this channel and I am very interested today to learn about a number of interconnected issues that I must admit I have personally never really thought about going together. So I'm very excited to be speaking to Dr. Suzanne Vengelé about her book, Titled Black Earth White Bread A Techno Political History of Russian Agriculture and Food, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2022. In the book, Suzanne shows how agrotechnology served and undermined Soviet and post Soviet Russian political projects. The book emphasizes a tight connection between political change, technological change in food systems, and the transformation of everyday lives. So there's a lot to get into um, from a historical perspective, current politics perspective, through the lens of something that is both incredibly familiar, food, but also in a lot of ways quite removed from our everyday lives. Um, So I found this book really interesting, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to the podcast to discuss it. Hi, Miranda. So I was wondering if you could start off, please, Suzanne, by introducing yourself, your academic background, um, and explain how you came to write this book.
0: Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. I am associate professor at the University of Notre Dame. I've been there since 2014. Before that, I was at the University of Chicago for years. And before that, I was a PhD student in Berkeley. So my research is sort of uh, broadly about Russian politics and political economy. Uh, And I study really how uh, markets were created in this post-Soviet period. Uh, now, often we think of markets as sort of the, uh, you know, where supply meets demand. And, you know, many of us are influenced by Adam Smith, who thinks that markets were created by the invisible hand. But for for many of us in political economy, we think about markets as institutions that have to be created. And, and you know, as these markets are created, there's many political issues are resolved. And Russia is an interesting place to study these things, because uh, the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, the market, uh, the planned economy disappeared, and markets have to be had to be created uh, more or less uh, from scratch. So it's, these are pretty new processes, and they're therefore sort of uh, easily more easily observed. So the first book I wrote was about electricity markets, and the second book is about agriculture.
1: Wonderful. And I was wondering if you could, sorry, go ahead.
0: I forgot to answer the second part of the question, how do you write this book? I I guess I, you know, I'm interested in sort of basic, basic things that everyone needs for, for, for sort of the modern life or just for living, right? So, uh, you know, food um, seemed to be a pretty, pretty important topic. And I guess I was living in Berkeley at the time, and California is a, really an ag state, and, and people are uh, preoccupied with, with questions about where their food comes from. So I started with a not, not knowing very much 10 years ago, uh, and have sort of dug in further into this sort of question, how the Soviet Union and Russia produced food.
1: And it's it's really quite interesting and there are a number of aspects to it you've already touched on that you look at the Soviet state but also the post-Soviet Russia so could you perhaps introduce us to the main takeaways of the book?
0: Um, Yeah I you know a a book book, books tend to be kind of forgiving so you can put lots of stuff in in them but uh, you know as I was writing there's really sort of three things that I ended up caring a lot about and um, you know the the most important thing to me was that we should try to understand the connections between production consumption and then sort of the the political side of food and also the environmental context uh, of agriculture. Um, And, you know, I came to understand these very big, broad things as very much entangled and intertwined. And, you know, that may sound like a pretty basic idea. Anyone who has gardened uh, and who you know, try to plant the potato, to harvest the potato, of course, knows that production and consumption are related. But strangely enough, academic research tends to silo these things with economists worried about production and efficiency. And then, you know, consumption is really uh, often the, uh, really uh, only the sort of preserved, uh, reserved for for anthropologists who worry about how consumption shapes identity. Um and then political scientists are worried about policies and so on. Um, and, and really all, all these studies are, are, are really valuable and, and, and insightful, but I just thought they, they sort of missed something and just how you know, effects uh, of trends that happen in production actually shape uh, consumption and politics and, and then also the sort of the natural context of, of agriculture. And then the second thing I started caring a lot about was uh, that technology really matters and is actually central to all these, you know, big areas. Um, and, you know, technology uh, changed a huge deal uh, throughout the 20th century. Uh, uh, but it's sort of, you know, I came to realize just how uh, technology intensive agriculture actually is And just how sophisticated a lot of these uh, technologies are. Uh, and, and you know, this is really the sort of emphasis on technology is not something I started with. It's something that uh, I arrived at while I was doing fieldwork for the book where, where I talked to people and they cared a lot about technology. They really kind of you know, politely answered all my questions, but the questions they really uh, liked were, were sort of about uh, the, the new combines or the fancy food processing technologies and so on. Um, and so I started thinking more about how technology matters, and 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 sort of came, kept came, coming back to that as a, as a red thread. And then the third thing um, that uh, mattered to me was that just how much uh historical events matter for how uh agriculture uh happens today in sort of Putin's Russia. Um and, and again this that's the reason why this ended up being a, a history rather than sort of a political science book about Putin's Putin's uh, agricultural policy because I I pretty quickly sort of realized that really There's no way to talk about contemporary Russia uh, without talking about uh, what happened in the 90s and then really uh, what happened in the 30s, uh, what Stalin did. And then and then I kept going back in the sort of around the 19th and and I sort of ended up uh, not going for much further back than the revolution. But Lenin's promise um, to the Russian people uh, that there shall be. Uh, peace, and that there shall be land and bread, really ended up being quite important as well. So so that's sort of the third uh, point, is just how much these uh, these big events reverberate throughout history.
1: That's really helpful to sort of give us a foundation for going into some detail now about aspects of the book. And I wanted to start off with a word that is in the title, actually, techno-political. Could you explain for us what the lens of technopolitics and agro agrotechnopolitics help us better understand about the linkages between food and politics?
0: Uh, yeah, thanks for this question. Right, so uh, I actually had a, a fight with my editor whether it can whether this term can or cannot be in the title, and I sort of ended up insisting because uh, I, I care about it a lot. And she, you know, she initially thought it was too esoteric, and I was like, well, actually. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be people should think about techno politics and, you know, it, it really isn't that difficult in the end it has sort of two parts as a technology part and the politics part. Uh, and they're both equally important. Right. So, um, you know, the first part is that food is really quite political. Right. Uh, in the Soviet Union, this was pretty obvious. Right. In some years, there just wasn't enough food and there was, you know, dramatic famines and uh, which then had a whole host of political consequences and also political causes right Uh, and then even later in later soviet year when there was mostly enough food uh, the sort of quality and the types of food was in fact a political concern and continues to be one for for president uh putin uh in many ways and then the sort of technology part is the fact that um governments rely on technologies to realize political promises Um, so technologies are are sort of uh, where where success and fi- failure and different types of, of uh, uh, food and agricultural productions uh, are realized. Uh, and and again, this sort of you know both both techno technology and politics were quite important. So I was happy to find this term uh, a few years into the the project, and then I kind of stuck with it. Yeah. And then the agro politics in many ways was that I found uh, that both politics and technology was important for agriculture. And it helped me uh, bring together uh, some of the sort of political side of things uh, with 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 how produced on the farm, so sort of the production side of things and then also with with consumption because often uh, the political uh, projects were about what people should and could uh, produce and so it, it ended up being a useful concept and you know I hope the book makes that case.
1: Yeah, um, it's very much the terminology was actually something that really helped me as a reader um, just as an anecdote to bring together a lot of these different strands I hadn't really ever thought of as going together. Um, so I think I at least was not super familiar with the word in the title. Um, and it kind of intrigued me. I was like, "Oh, what is this? Um, and then obviously hearing, reading it in the beginning of the book, I went, oh, okay, now I have a framework for going forwards. Um, so let, let's go forwards into, now that we've kind of got the foundation of the main takeaways, these really helpful terms, Um, something that is quite interesting in economies generally is there's often some amount of agriculture that is subsidized or run by the state and some amount that is run by individuals. Um, Obviously, in Soviet and communist um, countries, this is quite a tricky balance. There's often a lot of friction between these two different types of agriculture. Um, And you talk about this, particularly in the Soviet part of the book, Um, And I was actually really interested to learn that subsistence agriculture beyond state agriculture um, was actually more of a consistent thing in the Soviet era than I had perhaps expected, and that these two areas interacted, and in some ways, you even argue, complemented each other. Could you explain for us how these two different types of agricultural systems operated in the Soviet era?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, that is actually one of the, the things that I became really
1: interested in.
0: So I was a sort of a lead that I uh, followed. And, you know, subsistence production is something that, you know, we in developed and advanced industrialized countries are really not that familiar with anymore. At least most of us, it's sort of the sort of small scale craft, sort of low tech, but you know, a lot of people say that it just relies on different technologies and skills and knowledge, but it's a different kind of production. It's the, as you say, the individual production and in the context of the Soviet Union, it was also private production. It was what people did for themselves. It was, uh, you know, food that you, uh, produce uh, in in either uh, plots adjacent to rural homes or sort of in urban uh, garden plots. And as you said, you know, it was always a sort of pretty uh, significant part of uh, Soviet food production, uh, which in many ways, you know, was, was something that was, um, you know, interesting to me because the Soviet Union is such a high modernist state, right? And you know, the collectivization was sort of very, uh, you know, brutal and total, right? There was no real sort of room to uh, let people uh, farm uh, for themselves, right? Uh, And the government, the Soviet government was uh, absolutely ideologically opposed to private production. They thought it was, you know, backward and not conducive to the state that the goals of this uh, Soviet state uh, because it didn't produce for the industrial workforce, right? Uh, so why then uh, did it persist? Why was it so important? Was really kind of an interesting uh, question, and in it seems that uh, the answer was that it was this kind of symbiosis, right? The collective farms and subsistence farms kind of relied on each other. So, so in the you know bigger the bigger part is that subsistence production in many ways sort of picked up uh, where the plan failed, right? Uh, the planned economy and planned agriculture. And, you know, it turned out over the course of the 80 years of Soviet planning that it, it is quite tricky and quite challenging to have a plan, to have a centrally planned uh, agriculture in a, in a sort of a vast empire that the Soviet Union was, uh, with that stretches across many time zones and has such vastly different soil conditions. So the planned economy uh, succeeded in some ways, but in fact, also failed in many ways. Um, so subsistence and, and collective farming came to sort of co on and, and feed off each other. So subsistence farming, uh, in fact, uh, relied on the collective so- sector for many of its inputs. So the most basic uh, one was uh, labor, right? Collective farm workers. Um, uh, worked uh, also on garden plots, but then also things like tools, uh, seeds, uh, animals, and and sort of many other things, right? So subsistence farming thrived in the Soviet Union because it was sort of, uh, sort of, uh, I don't want to say, add on, but it was sort of connected to to collective farms, um, and then. Subsistence uh, the the collective farms actually you know uh, benefited from subsistence farming because in some in in many ways initially the collective farms didn't really reward collective farm workers right under Stalin uh, collective farm workers were paid once a year a, a very nominal amount so they couldn't have survived for not for subsistence farming. Um, and so, m- more generally, uh, subsistence farming really just kept people alive during uh, the years of crisis, and there were several uh, in Soviet history. Starting in, with the Civil War, subsistence farming was really important in the world, world War II, and then again in the 80s, and again in the 90s. So it was the, a kind of insurance mechanism. Um, and you know what's happened to it in the in the sort of last 20 years is quite interesting uh, in the sense that. The, the agricultural policies under Putin have sort of made it disappear. Uh, but nevertheless, it's still in recent memory for many people. So I'm, I'm wondering if it can come back uh, possibly as we are headed into a new crisis as Russia is headed into a crisis
1: right now. Fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely within living memory. Um, and, to sort of continue this link that you're already beginning to draw for us about the Soviet and post-Soviet Russian policies, um, you look at how both of these uh, um, political administrations relied on specific groups in order to enact their agriculture and food policies and political systems. Um, Can you explain how, even though the groups they relied on are perhaps quite different, how this idea of picking up specific groups and, kind of getting them on side in order to make this happen was actually quite similar during the soviet and post-soviet time
0: yeah so the the basic idea is basic is the basic idea is basically that governments have a lot of goals and policies and targets uh for agriculture you know and this this is things like you know yields and productivity and total output and you know types of commodities and and so on Um, and what exactly these goals were changed over time, uh, but it, it, what didn't change is that they never did it by themselves, right? They always relied either on the sort of peasants before Stalin and later on on the collective farms and then uh, more recently on these uh, large uh, agroholdings, corporate private farms, who the farmers uh, and and the uh, you know ag- agricultural collectives. Actually, did the planting and tending and harvesting and processing uh, that then sort of allowed the government to sort of fulfill these political goals. And, and what is interesting uh, here is that uh, technologies of productions are unequally distributed, distributed across uh Rural actors, right? So, so, and that is particularly true for ca- large-scale and capital-intensive technologies. So, for example, uh, uh, you know, twenty-first-century uh, combine harvester is incredibly expensive, and uh, you know, not everyone has these kind of things, right? And and the same, you know, for the Soviet period. There's other uh, technologies. So Stalin really uh, relied on tractors, but there's many, many types of technologies, uh, particularly capital-intensive project uh, 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 technologies is irrigation. So The the political goals uh, were always more easily achieved for certain types of uh, technologies and only certain actors had access to these technologies. So that's where where we see that governments sort of rely on particular actors. And and this is particularly obvious in the Putin period, where only the sort of very large, uh, vertically integrated agricultural corporations have access to capital and the kind of uh, technologies that have allowed Putin to to uh, pursue the, the his goals for technology. Um, so maybe I should should just introduce uh, Putin's food policies uh, a little bit before I to make this more clear. Is that is that a good idea, Miranda? Please. Yeah. So I've referred a couple times to to Putin's agricultural policies, and and they uh, were quite. Um, distinct from the Yeltsin era agricultural policies. Uh, and, and you know, this is actually something I've been writing about for sort of the better part of the last five to ten years. And it was always a little bit obscure, but uh, it, it it has become uh, sort of newly relevant in the current crisis. And I can talk about why that is the case, or it actually will become pretty clear. So uh, the 90s were sort of a disastrous period for um russian farm and also for farms everywhere everywhere else in the in the post soviet period uh because privatization and liberalization were just so uh uh difficult uh, and a lot of farms collapsed agricultural output collapsed uh, farms went went bankrupt um and so russian uh, ag- russian agricultural output was far below uh in the mid 90s and late 90s was far below what it had been in the late Soviet period so so when putin comes to power in in 2000 um he has what is called the, uh, adopts what he calls the food sovereignty agenda or the food uh, security agenda and he basically wants to strengthen russian domestic agriculture a sort of restore uh russia's role as the breadbasket um for for the rest of europe and and the world um So the food security agenda has basically two components. One is to produce enough food to prevent food price inflation in Russia. Food price inflation was one of the issues that made Yeltsin really, really uh, unpopular because the Soviet Union had stabilized prices for for food for decades. Uh, And so, you know, pensioners and teachers on a fixed budget just were basically sort of puzzled and shocked uh that they couldn't afford basic foods um and so Putin wants to strengthen domestic production to be able to uh stabilize domestic food prices and the the international aspect of the food security agenda is perhaps even more important, and it's about um weaning Russia off Western uh, imports. So in the 90s, uh, as Russian agriculture uh, was in crisis, Russia started importing uh, pretty much uh, uh, all kinds of agricultural uh, commodities and, and food products. And so the, f- the food security agenda was was in essence a kind of import substitution uh, agenda to sort of make sure Russia would not in the long run depend on food imports uh, from Russia uh, other countries and, and primarily the, the West, uh, and so this there's a this is sort of an overarching policy agenda, sort of what he calls a national priority project, uh, and and it was implemented through a series of actually concrete uh, policies like uh, subsidized credit, um, import uh, sorry export uh, subsidies and and import restruct- restrictions and uh, tax. Uh, benefits and so on Um, and and sort of initially there wasn't a lot of money in in sort of uh, the russian budget to to deal with that but as the first eight years of the putin presidency were were one of economic growth and rising oil prices the russian government really ended up supporting agricultural uh, producers quite a bit and they strengthened during this initial time and then uh, they became quite um, successful
1: and profitable over time so How then, with this sort of political background, this obviously strong emphasis on a policy level, how have these agro holdings changed the food system in Russia?
0: Yeah, so the agro holdings were this sort of, you know, favoured, privileged partner of the Putin uh, government. Um, So let me maybe perhaps just say a couple more words about uh, what they are, right? It's uh, we're, We're not... I think the term agroholding is very common in the Russian co- context, but we don't tend to think about these as sort of important political actors uh, outside of Russia. So they are basically vertically integrated agricultural corporations, right? They're in a very large. They they tend to. Uh, Uh, they, you know, they, they, uh, do basically large scale industrial farming and processing, uh, in, in Russia and many other, um, post-Soviet countries. Uh, and so they're, they're agricultural corporations in, in the way that we know them from other contexts, but they're actually more vertically integrated, uh, than, than in other countries. So that means they own the land, they, um, uh, they uh, produce the seeds to uh, produce the uh, grains, or uh, if they're if they're specializing in meat production, to produce the feed to produce the uh, to feed the animals. To uh, you know, and and so on, right? So they also deal with uh, processing, and then you know, end up you know having their own brands, and actually some of them even have their own stores, right? So, uh, and another distinctive feature is they ended up. Uh, owning very large tracts of russia's most fertile land uh, uh, agricultural land so they're actually russia's most important uh landowners as well so uh to come to your questions how they change russia's food system uh you know the 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 starting point is for that uh, for that for the answer to that question is basically that um they introduced a sort of cutting edge farm technology to the Russian agricultural sector. And, and with these new technologies, they produce more efficiently and, and more uh, profitably. So they changed a sort of how uh, food is produced and how grain is, is cultivated. Um, and then they also just, um, you know, uh, uh, uh contributed to, to producing more, right? So there's more of certain commodities that are produced, which, which you know, is reflected in overall production numbers, but it also uh, has shaped exports, right? So um, agri holdings, agri holdings are really the actors that have uh, contributed to um, the sort of global integration of the Russian food system. So this is a little bit of a tricky, uh, a tricky business because I just said that uh, Putin wanted to um, you know, reduce dependence on the West. So it's it's a little bit tricky that you know, on the one hand, Russia's dependence on foreign imports is reduced, but agroholdings are actually pretty global companies, uh, in the sense that uh, even though they produce more of the bulk commodities, uh, at least initially they imported a lot of the the uh, technology and uh, also some some capital from uh, abroad uh, from abroad, right? So. um, and then uh, they are also um, the, because they produce so much grain, they're also sort of the link through which Russia is connected to the countries that uh, import a lot of Russian grain. So Russia is now the largest um, wheat exporter, exporting wheat to over 100 countries across the world. So holdings are, are really the sort of driver of all these uh, processes.
1: Thank you for explaining that. Um, and it also kind of links nicely to another thing I wanted to ask you about the book, which is, as you said, there's something of a tension between agriholdings being, in a lot of ways, politically strengthened by this idea of Russian agriculture being separate from the rest of the world. But actually, these are global companies, and there was a lot of kind of international involvement to get them to this place. Um, and that seems to be something that's not just true of agriholdings, but actually, has occurred a number of times throughout Soviet and now post-Soviet history. Um, And you talk about in the book, quote, exchanges of knowledge, technology and commodities. And you describe how this impacted both American agriculture as well as Soviet and then Russian agriculture and markets. Could you expand a bit more on these exchanges and the impact they had?
0: Yeah, so that, you know, as I started focusing on technology, there there was really a lot of interesting uh, aspects of sort of what, what technology and, and where did this technology uh, come from? So really, since the late uh, 19th century, agriculture has become more reliant on specialized technologies. And, and uh, in many ways, uh, these technologies uh, developed in the capitalist uh, West at the time. So the U.S. and, and Europe and um and, you know, and uh, however, other technologies uh, also developed in, in sort of late imperial Russia, for example, uh, uh, seeds, uh, seed technologies and and plant breeding. Uh, imperial Russia was actually sort of uh, among the leading uh, innovators of the time. So there was a few centers in, in which these various agricultural technologies developed. And, you know, ever since late imperial Russia and then also very much uh, under in, under the Soviet uh, uh Uh, regime, exchanges of expertise uh, was very much uh, encouraged. So the Soviet government uh, absolutely wanted to modernize uh, agriculture and was absolutely uh, willing to uh, try to borrow and buy and adopt uh, these technologies from the capitalist uh, West. So in in many ways, you can think of technology as machines, but in other ways, uh, there were also exchanges of, of experts and of people, uh, and you know uh, who were going back and forth. Um, so this is, uh, you know, commissions uh, and you know uh, private sector exchanges uh, between the Soviet Union uh, and the U.S. Uh, and Europe. Uh, of uh in in all kinds of areas. Uh and you know the the areas of technology technological exchange evolved over time and there was there was periods of ruptures and periods uh of more intense uh exchange. So the uh, uh Ford Corporation and uh, a Soviet uh counterpart um uh, met in the in the uh, uh, earliest twentieth century uh there were uh, under Khrushchev uh, in the fifties. There was sort of a period of exchanges uh, and so on. So there, there was actually a, a lot more exchange. And and I have uh, colleagues who write about these things uh, in more detail. But but. That what what sort of the bigger point that I think uh, continues to matter is that this this sort of paradox I talked about for for the Putin period that in in many ways the agroholdings were meant to be the champions of Russian agriculture in the twentieth century, but they really uh, initially relied a lot on imported uh, technology. Um, and, and, uh, the, the question of course, uh, is now is to what extent they still rely on imported technology. So for maybe the last 10, 15 periods, the Russian government has really urged all agricultural producers to source technology domestically. And, and some of them have complied and, and the compliance was easier in some areas of agricultural technology. And it was just harder in, in other areas, um and sort of to what extent this sort of domestication or nativization of agricultural technology uh, was complete is really something we'll find out, right? We'll find out now how much um, Russia still relies on foreign technology. Fascinating.
1: Um, Another way in which your book looks at the impact of foreign things on the Soviet and Russian um, agriculture is about food consumption. And you talk about this in the book of, and you've even mentioned it already, right? The idea that what Russians today have access to to eat is quite different and means that things like subsistence agriculture are more memories rather than lived realities. So could you tell us a little bit more about how the map of food consumption changed from the Soviet to the post-Soviet era?
0: Uh, Yeah, great question. Thanks. That's another one of these things that sort of became really sort of fascinating to me, um, because there are, you know, uh, great histories of consumption. And this is something that people uh, worried about intensely. And, you know, we see, we actually see lots of references to consumption in, you know, uh, Soviet novels as well. And and, and so consumption is in many ways uh, interesting because it's something quite sort of intimate, right? It's what do I choose to eat? Right. And um, but on the other hand, you know, choice, Choice obviously isn't unlimited, right? And and people can only choose to eat whatever is available. And this sort of available uh, availability and access to particular foods are, are very much tied to uh, production, but then it also to uh, stratification and and sort of you know who who in society has access to the particularly sort of tasty uh, bits of the food system. So. Uh, as as you probably know, the Soviet Union was was had relatively more income inequality than than capitalist society, and it was obviously a society that was striving for for uh, equality in a number of really important um, respect. But it turns out that actually consumption uh, was always uh, stratified, right? And so there were, for example, um, special stores for uh, nomenklatura. Um, elites and you know initially these stores were, were uh, uh, reserved for uh, party officials who had access and had special currency uh, to buy in these uh, stores and then sort of over time as uh, more uh, Soviet citizens could go abroad and have foreign currency they were just they, they uh, became these sort of uh, uh, foreign currency stores where, where imported food items could be could be purchased. Uh, and then, uh, even in you know the Soviet Union had restaurants, and and some restaurants uh, received uh, more uh, uh, favorable treatment in in sort of the the, the more tasty bits uh, of meat and the fresher vegetables and so on, and 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 so sort of these kinds of hierarchies were really quite elaborate. So, for example. The the industries that were politically more important, such as the defense uh, industries, had canteens that were better supplied than canteens uh, from light industry and so on. So, uh, so there was a sort of you know political industrial uh, stratification as well. And then there was obviously also a geographical. Uh, stratification that in the sense that the big cities were always better supplied. Uh, you know, uh, often uh, people in sort of little provincial towns uh, couldn't buy meat. And that is then also how uh, subsistence agriculture filled in the gap. Right. So that uh, the but, you know, as we as we look back sort of from the uh, early twenty first century to the twentieth century, the sort of uh, you know local, locally produced craft uh, foods are often what is most valued, right? So people who actually had access to uh, subsistence production actually sometimes ate better than urban citizens. Uh, who didn't? So, so it's really quite interesting how sort of you know what what is valued has changed over time, but also uh, who had then access to to these things. And so, one important thing that changed between the Soviet and the post-Soviet period is uh, how prices worked. Right. So, one of the things that uh, distinguished Soviet from uh, post-Soviet uh, uh, consumption is that in the Soviet pe- period, as I mentioned, uh, food prices were kept relatively uh, stable right this was actually a political goal uh, to not raise prices for food for various um, political reasons that I, I won't go into but but this obviously changed in the post-Soviet period uh and so in the Soviet period access was granted uh through sort of either those political uh, priorities or through informal networks right uh, there's a lot of informality in the soviet planned economy so if you knew somebody who knew someone high up or who ran the store so networks uh, gave gave people access um in the post-soviet period it it uh, it, it sort of uh, changed a bit in that more food uh, was available or it changed actually quite dramatically that, uh, especially over time and especially with the P- Putin period, more food was available, but food was priced differently. Right. And it sort of, uh, especially in the, in the uh, initial period, uh, uh, on some pri- some foods were really expensive and entirely unaccessible uh, for many people. And so under Putin, more high quality foods became available for a larger uh, group of citizens, Uh, but price still works to stratify access and some foods are incredibly expensive and not available for Mm -hmm. the majority of Russians. Um, so so that is sort of uh, you know the the broad overview of how uh, consumption changes, but consumption this is an incredibly uh, myriad topic, right? There's so many uh, aspects of this. and and, you know, i I, I think uh, you know i there is definitely room for more work uh, on on consumption. And I think there's, you know, other people are writing about this. But it was important to me sort of to to connect um. Uh, consumption with with politics, for example, uh, as much as it was um, a topic in itself.
1: Yeah, so thank you for explaining that and as well kind of implicitly describing differences in food insecurity um, as well between the two periods, which is quite interesting in terms of kind of what we might expect. The idea, as you said, that subsistence agriculture might mean that people have access to more food than people in cities Um, At different times. So it's really helpful to hear how things change around consumption and insecurity. Um, To move to a different part of your book, because unfortunately we cannot go into every single detail, so we're doing a kind of quick tour of the book. Um, You talk a lot about um, animal breeding and the importance of animals, um, and also the fact that we don't often study them as part of uh, agricultural processes and especially. Techno political processes. Um, so, can you explain for us why you argue that quote a critical aspect of the shift from Soviet to post Soviet planned and animal breeding, plant and animal breeding is the changing emphasis on local context?
0: Yeah. So this was really uh, something uh, that um, I I didn't expect to write about. Right. So uh, it came about the sort of question of how. How can I write about agriculture's uh, connection to the natural environment, right? So I, w- I, I had a strong intuition and sense that you know, the natural environment and, you know, you know, soils and climate and plants were incredibly important to this uh, story. And so sort of the the sort of bigger question, how do humans relate to uh, nature? Through agriculture was this this thing that I wanted to write about, but I, you know, as as the this is an enormous topic. I sort of was was casting about and looking at different ways to to approach this, and then you know, sort of seed and plant and animal breeding sort of uh, you know emerged as this as this really interesting way to think about um, the sort of human nature uh, nexus or what I call human nature nexus. Uh, in agriculture because it was both you know about nature right uh, you know grains are uh you know wheat is a grain and a grain is is a grass right and then the same thing for for you know uh uh meat right meat is is an animal and an animal is is just sort of um Part of nature, right? And so, what what turned out is that, uh, you know, the planning bureaucracies and the state, and then later the the sort of uh, Russian government had all kinds of ideas about what kind of animals and what kind of plants would be particularly helpful and useful, right? And so. Uh, plant breeding is sort of the way in which uh, the state tries to steer or shape uh, nature in a very sort of concrete uh, way. So, so I started looking at breeding goals uh, for the Soviet and the post-Soviet period, um, and you know, there's there's just. You know, these are vast archives of plant breeders and 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 you know the wheat breeders and the potato breeders. They're they're their own communities and they have their own journals and their own concerns and their own institutions. So those are this is a really rich area to look at. And then I, one of the things I just noticed is that Soviet animal breeders paid a lot of attention to uh, the natural environment and the different climatic conditions and the different, uh, locally situated breeds, right? So there, uh, there's sort of the, the concern about preserving local breeds at the same, same time uh, as the concern about increasing, uh, the efficiency of these breeds, for example, right? So, you know, Soviet, uh, Pork breeders, just for example, cared about how fast a little piglet put on weight and how many days until uh, these piglets reached slaughter weight. But it also they also cared about how well they could deal with, for example, cold uh, environments, or uh, for the example of of plants, if they could deal with short breeding, um, uh, short um, seasons uh, because of long winters and so on. So, so Soviet. Um, plant breeding just talked a lot about these things and sort of valued local adaptation and local context for different varieties. And so at some point, I came across a report about the the number uh, of uh, uh, pig breeds and the number of different animal breeds that are used in different set, uh, sectors. And there was sort of a very matter-of-factly statement by a plant breeder that just said, well... Uh, Soviet agriculture relies on a large number of animal breeds because they basically have to, right? Because the local, the plant economy never in the, in the same way sort of perfected the plant breeding uh, environment sort of uh, in, in a way that capitalist uh, breeding uh, did. So that sort of seemed something really interesting to me. And then as I compared this with the post-Soviet um, breeding strategies, there's a sort of sh- sharp decline in the number of uh uh pig breeds for example uh that were used because there was an intense focus on the best pig breed right and again on sort of which are the internationally most productive breeds and so those are often uh those were actually sort of four internationally uh high-performing pig breeds one was from the uk and the other one from the netherlands uh and then um I forget where the other two are from, um, but but these are basically sort of the transnational pigs that the transnational pork breeding industry had sort of perfected. Um, and so, so for these pigs, uh, local uh, context and environment didn't matter at all uh, because they were reared in sort of these high-tech confinement facilities where the local context was shut out, right? That was the whole point of this kind of pig breeding is that you didn't have to pay attention to pig to 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 envi- local environments, and so I just found that a really interesting shift. How sort of a failure of the Soviet planned economy turned into uh, a sort of uh, a richness in in and an attention to local uh, context, and a sort of success of the capitalist post-Soviet period uh, seems to be sort of this um, you know failure to look at. Uh, to take into account local context uh, and in other ways, so so that's just one of the ways in which uh, I feel this research has sort of scrambled what we think of sort of good good things in agriculture and failures and and so on.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you included it in the book because it's definitely not what one would necessarily expect immediately. Um, so to continue our tour of the book. Um, We've already mentioned this idea that we we know in 2015, uh, there's a food embargo imposed on Russia. um, And you've already mentioned that it was easier for some aspects of the agricultural sector to uh, remove themselves from international links than others. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how this embargo impacted the how and the who of Russian agriculture.
0: Yeah, so this, you know, embargo is really kind of uh, interesting. And again, it's one of these details that, you know, I wasn't sure how it was going to be relevant in in sort of the bigger story of of Russian agriculture and Russia's economy and Russian politics, Um, but it became actually quite important. So um, just for a little bit of context, um, Russia uh, tried to annex Crimea and has occupied Crimea uh, since 2015, and the West uh, initiated a number uh, of sanctions. And so the food embargo was Russia's reaction to these uh, mostly financial and elite sanctions at that time. So it was kind of an odd response because it was clearly something that Russia cared a lot about, uh, but it was sort of, a, uh, uh, you know, not not a sort of reciprocal Sanction. Um, so it was about uh, basically keeping out Western food um, and, um, you know, a number, uh, it included uh, mostly uh, the US and, and Western Europe, uh, but a, a number of these countries had imported a lot of food. And so just again, for a little bit more context, uh, the Russia had joined the WTO in 2010. And had under the WTO obligation uh, had a few, few, a little bit of time to remove uh, trade sanctions, but sort of by the sort of uh, you know 2012 or so, a lot of Russian uh, uh, producers were 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 uh, not happy that. Uh, some Russian agricultural sectors were not protected anymore. So the food embargo was sort of this convenient way to uh, protect Russian producers again. And so predictably, it strengthened a lot of Russian producers. Uh, it also, uh, a second effect was that it shifted the source of import, right? So uh, Norwegian uh uh, French cheese and Norwegian salmon were replaced with uh, either uh, Russian fish or Belarusian uh, dairy. So Belarusia was, in fact, a big winner. And uh, a number of uh, sort of uh, Central Asian countries uh, started importing more um fruits and vegetables to Russia, for example. So the the embargo kind of reshaped how Russia was integrated into global uh, food markets. Um, and and in terms of the, the what, uh, initially, it sort of depended how quickly Russian producers could scale up production and respond to these new opportunities. And so at the time, the Russian government had already supported uh, poultry and pork producer for quite some time so poultry and pork producers were basically ready to jump at the occasion and and sort of produce uh, vast uh, quantities of of uh you know Chicken and chicken became sort of this big uh, uh, food for for all kinds of fast food outlets too, right? So it also changed. Uh, you know, I should have mentioned that uh, earlier on, and the sort of how the agri holdings changed consumption because agri holdings basically produce food for fast food companies, and they they you know gained tremendous popularity and and were sort of booming during this time. But anyway, so chicken and pork benefited from the embargo, and then a couple other branches have were a little uh, of Russian agriculture were a little slower to respond. And so, for example, it takes a little longer to to get dairies going. but but sort of by you know, let's just say by 2020 uh, really a, a lot
1: of uh, Russian producers had had benefited from the embargo. Wonderful. Thank you for explaining that. and I think we're probably going to get to a little bit of kind of what came next in a moment. Um, but so far, I've kind of mentioned a number of areas that I was surprised by uh, reading this book and definitely learned from, given that you obviously spent way more time with this material. Was there anything in this research and writing process that surprised you?
0: Um, You know, I I guess there's sort of many big and little things and, you know, a a book project ends up uh, taking up Many years of your life, so there's a lot of different aha moments. Um, but definitely, sort of a big one was just how important earlier episodes of uh, rural reforms were for later episodes of rural reforms. And and again, this sounds like sort of a, a pretty obvious uh, things, but to sort of see exactly how this uh, was at work was really interesting uh, to me. So, for example. This, this sort of rise of the agroholding and in many ways, this sort of politically orchestrated uh, uh, transfer of, of Russia's land assets from the collective farms to the agroholdings. Uh, so Putin very much uh, supported this. Um, and you know we now have you know these these new uh, oligarchic agroholdings as the, as Russia's largest landholding so this was really uh, only possible i realized because of what stalin did in the 1930s right so um uh, lenin had nationalized land in the 20s and and what this in fact meant was there sort of a, a de facto uh, a huge decentralization of control over agricultural uh, decisions, right? It was, it was this, the central government had very little control over the countryside for, for most of the 20s, as, as uh, every historian could tell us. And so Stalin's collectivization in the 30s was this sort of massive effort uh, by the state To take away control uh, from the peasants and sort of uh, and 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 control peasants via the collective farms. And this was, you know, uh, ostensibly about production decisions about how to farm the land, but it was very much also about political control of the peasants who were these sort of recalcitrant actors in the Soviet Empire. So so this the sort of starting in the last month of twenty nine, but then in the early throughout the early. 30s, we, we sort of see this, this very brutal, very top-down, very consequential shift in control of land that ends up creating the, the collective farms that were then around for the better part or for the rest of the 20th century and only under Putin in the 2010s are these large tracts of land then handed to agroholdings, who are sort of ostensibly private actors, but as as Putin's economy is very much about carrots and sticks, these oligarchic actors and the agroholdings are are, are are have political obligations as well. So, so this is sorry a very long uh winded answer to sort of uh, your question about surprises, but it you know this wasn't obvious to me. This was something I sort of realized as I, I did this research. And, and then there's many other instances of sort of uh, this sort of, wow, okay, this happens because of all these other things that have happened before, uh, which is sort of what sustained my interest in writing the book over time.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and to, for my traditional last question, which I think in your case might be a bit unusual, um, now that this book has obviously been published, I imagine you're probably working on something now or your next project, Um, but I'm guessing that given the content of this book, you're also probably involved in some discussions about the current conflict in Ukraine and how food and agri-politics is involved there.
0: Yeah, so, you know, one project leads to the other. I think that's a very common story. But but definitely, you know, some of these projects have now had to take a backseat and others are just very much uh, with me. So one of the projects I had was was uh, to look at how all of these things uh, uh, played themselves out in other post-Soviet countries because the book is very much about the Soviet period and then tracks uh, trends in uh the Russian Federation, right, and Putin's Russia, but obviously there is uh, uh, all the other uh, post-Soviet countries had had different trajectories, right? They had, in many ways, shared starting points in terms of collective farms and collectivization. But independent Ukraine and independent Georgia and independent Uzbekistan uh took very different uh decisions in terms of how they tried to uh uh bring about the recovery from the nineties and so on. So I had a project that looked at a bunch of different uh actors and in that in as part of that project I did uh do a bunch of research on on Ukraine and you know the 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 Khrushchev era reforms that I do talk about in the book uh, end up sort of influencing how Ukraine's agriculture uh, looks like now, right? So um, that research about uh, grain in, in in Ukraine and 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 just more generally the sort of question uh, what, um what is happening to Eurasian grain um, as the Russia's war in Ukraine is disrupting disrupting really pretty much every every part of this whole uh, story, right? So it's not just, uh, initially the sort of question was like, oh, the ports are closed and there's a shipping blockade. We can't trade, like, the trade is disrupted. But increasingly, it, you know, it's becoming very much uh, also about uh, disruptions in, in harvesting and planting. Uh, and and a lot of Eurasian grain is, is actually uh, winter wheat. And winter wheat is planned in October and harvested uh, just about now after uh uh, in, in early April, so so there's some really urgent questions about um, what is happening to Eurasian grain and and what will happen to Ukrainian corn uh, this fall. And you know there, there's, there's a long and a short answer, and we could talk another answer, hour about the long answer, but the short answer is that there's going to be a lot less corn that Eurasia produces for the global markets, and 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 that's going to lead to uh, food insecurity in many other countries.
1: Thank you for sharing, us, sharing that with us. I think it is, as you said, quite common that one project leads to another, um, whether or not there's a war going on. But of course, with this additional complication, um, that lends a lot of, I'm sure, interest to your work. Um, so it sounds like you've got a lot to keep going with. Um, but in the meantime, uh, listeners can read your current book, which again is titled Black Earth, White Bread, A Technopolitical History of Russian Agriculture and Food, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2022. Thank you very much, Suzanne, for sharing your work with us today.
0: Thank you, Miranda. You know, I forgot to talk about my forest projects. The next, next project is about forests, but I will talk about this at a later time. But thanks again for the opportunity to talk about this project. And
1: uh, I hope we can talk again in the future. Amazing. Well, hopefully we'll be able to have you back for your next book. Thank you.